Good morning, everyone. So today we are, are back in the New Testament letter of First Timothy after finishing our, our three-week series. Uh, we sort of pause from that to look at the Bible and Andy challenges about how important the Bible was to us. Um, and as I read today's passage, I was reminded of a book I'd read over the summer. It was a book about mountain or fell running. Fells being the names um, of the big hills in the Lake District. Now, the book's called uh, Feet in the Clouds, the classic tale of fell running and obsession. And the question that probably springs straight into your mind is this, why? Why would you read a book about fell running? Well, the honest answer is my brother sent it to me randomly in the post, so I felt I had to. Um, but um, I'm not about to take up fell running as some kind of midlife crisis hobby. You know, don't worry, you know, walking up mountains is more than hard enough before swapping you know, rucksack and boots for uh, trainers and shorts. But I actually really enjoyed the book. It was full of, of jaw-dropping stories um, of people like a guy called Mark Hartle, who, get this, he ran for 24 hours solid over 109 miles, and this is the best bit, covering 77 peaks in the Lake District. Um, or Kenny Stewart, who ran up and down Ben Nevis in less than 90 minutes. It takes you about five hours to walk up normally. So, uh, but apart from kind of tales of just mind-blowing human endurance and just kind of mad people, um, it also touched on what motivates people to do such extreme things as fell running. And surprisingly, you might find in this book, the author writes with great insight about modern life. And he describes ideas about contentment that the Apostle Paul wrote about 2,000 years earlier. Um, now, I'm guessing we don't have many fell runners in the room at the moment. I'm going to make that assumption. But see if you recognise um, what the author is talking about in this passage from the book. Why do people run in the hills? Because we are richer now, but also more overworked. We have more possessions and they tyrannise us. Each new mod con must be shopped for, maintained, insured, upgraded. Each new thing must be stored, kept track of, tidied. And we pay for it in overwork, time poverty, round-the-clock availability and round-the-clock insecurity. We have more and we have less. In such a world, freedom is more precious and yet more elusive than ever. The attraction of a long day in the hills means you escape from all those things. The point of fell running is to carry as little as possible. Success depends on what you have in your head and in your heart. The less you have in your backpack, the better. Now I think the author was on to something there. As we read the next section of 1 Timothy chapter 6, look out for those ideas, particularly that final sentence, success depends on what you have in your head and your heart. The less you have in your backpack, the better. So just a quick reminder of the context of this letter before we read our verses. Um, Paul the Apostle is writing to Timothy, a young church leader. He's already set out some principles of how to organise local church. And as he comes to the end of this letter, Paul starts to sort of sum up his thoughts in today's passage, he wants to leave Timothy with instructions about what he should really emphasise uh, to the Christians gathering in Ephesus. So let's read it now together. First Timothy chapter 6, and we're going to start at verse 2. These are the things you are to teach and urge on them. 
If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So what are the four things um, that Paul urges Timothy to teach? He says, teach the truth and avoid false doctrine. Paul is bothered about accuracy. He says, avoid pointless disagreements. There's no time for empty arguments. Seek godly contentment. Contentment is really important. And beware the dangers of the love of money. Life is not all about cash. Or to try and put it another way, our passage is all about accuracy, not arguments, and contentment, not cash. And I think there's a blueprint for living um, that works well for both our church and for us as individuals too. That's why the Bible is a living book. It's worthy of study, generation after generation. And that's what we try and do uh, every week here. The world's bestseller, as Andy reminded us the other week. And the other book I read over the summer was on church history. And pretty much the story of the church over the last 2,000 years has been those four points being ignored time and time again. Teaching error and heresy not found in the Bible. Spending years fixating on arguments. Failing to be content in God but seeking other things. And loving money, sadly. And I also wonder if there's maybe some parallels for our nation right at this moment today. We see a disregard for truthfulness by our politicians. In fact, this week I read that Facebook have said that in the US they will not take down political ads that have proven lies in them. As a result of the the good old Brexit referendum, our country has spent over three years fixating on arguments and controversies, often many of them circular and futile. And I think we've lost the sight of the concept of contentment in our country. Where do we find satisfaction apart from getting more stuff? The growing Extinction Rebellion movement reminds us that we can't just go on piling up possessions and using the earth's resources without there being consequences. And then there's a fixation with earning more money to constantly rank our country in terms of gross domestic product as if that is the worth of our nation. So if ever we need to study these eight verses in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it's definitely today. Because the good news is that the answers to the problems of our world are found in here and not in the result of any election. Okay, so let's study them now. So Paul says in verses 2 and 3, we are to teach and urge the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and godly teaching and not to listen to false doctrines. Now, false doctrines have always been around since the very beginning of the church. 
People have always doubted whether Jesus is really fully God and fully man. They've always questioned the virgin birth, whether miracles really happened and scorned his resurrection from the dead. And while we might expect some of those kind of criticisms to come from outside of the church, godless leaders and hardened atheists, what is more surprising perhaps is when we find teachers and ministers and supposed fellow Christian leaders also peddling false doctrines. certainly happens today and it was the same in Paul's day. So Paul has started this letter in chapter 1, warning Timothy about the dangers of false teachers, and now he ends on this theme once again. This was a point he was underlining in red. It was a real danger in first century Ephesus, and of course, that warning is just as necessary in 21st century Newcastle. We need sound instruction. Sound here literally means healthy, as found in the Bible. That's why this church will always seek to open the Bible when we gather together, we'll always dedicate at least 30 to 40 minutes of our main morning service to Bible teaching. We need to understand and apply our minds to what God is teaching, literally renewing our minds. In verse 4, what does Paul call the false teachers that think they know better than God? He says, conceited and understand nothing. Now, conceit or self-important is a massive barrier to understanding and knowledge. Um, If a scientist thinks he or she knows the answer before they start their research, then those presuppositions can blind them to the discoveries to be made. And surveys regularly find that most people think they are above average at a certain skill. So take the example of of driving. Um, A recent study by psychologists reported uh, this. And maybe this is a game you could play along with in your own head. If you ask someone to rate their driving skills between 1 and 10, so say 1 being, don't get in the car with me, I don't know what a handbrake is, and 10 being, I'm Lewis Hamilton, okay? So just maybe in your head just now, just think, where am I, 1 to 10? Okay, got a number in your head? So this study said, if you ask someone to rate their driving skills, it's easy to rate other people, isn't it? It's very easy to, yeah. There's a good chance that they'll give themselves an above average rating like a 7. Okay? Michael Leersch of New York State University found that although people may rate themselves as above average, they don't think others would agree. As predicted, across all experiments, participants believed that they were exceptional drivers, but only according to their own definition of good driving. The results of this study suggest that people often view their own standards as superior. Isn't that so like us, though, that we often view our own standards as superior? And Paul says, it's the Lord Jesus' sound instruction we need. It's his standards we need to follow and live by, not our own. And so we need to watch out for our own conceit. It blinds us to the reality of our situation. And conceit is so often what is behind the heart of false doctrine. I don't know if you've ever heard these kind of phrases uh, spoken. I think we've moved on from that now. The church really has to modernise. Nobody in the 21st century believes that medieval stuff anymore. Words that are full of their own self-importance from people that think they are in the know. Ultimately, there may be great-sounding words, there might be complex alternative doctrines, ways of explaining away tricky passages of the Bible, but Paul doesn't mince his words here when he says, they know nothing, they're conceited. So was Paul just a a shock jock? Would his Twitter account be full of capital letters and angry, fiery emojis? Paul isn't some rabble-rouser. Paul is a lighthouse. 
He's steering his readers away from disaster. You see, that's exactly where false teaching leads us in the end, death and disaster. It's as real as that, so it's not a time for vague warnings. Jesus himself talked about wolves in sheep's clothing when he was confronting the Pharisees, the false teachers of his day. And now a real shepherd doesn't just kind of wag his finger at the wolves or raise an eyebrow. What they like, those wolves eating the sheep again? No, the shepherd drives the wolves off or it's disaster for the flock. False teachers need to be taken seriously and treated with extreme caution. And that means that we need to be careful who we're listening to as well. If you are in the habit of um, reading Christian books or listening to sermons online, great habit, by the way, make sure you evaluate where they're coming from. Do some research into the author or the preacher first. Through the internet, we have access to more false teachers than ever before. And that's why it's really important that we're part of a local church like this, where we get to see and live alongside those that teach the Bible. Is their message authenticated, backed up by their lifestyle? The fruit of healthy teaching and of sound doctrine is a healthy church and followers of Jesus who want to share their faith with others. So Paul urges Timothy and us to hold on to sound doctrine. Accuracy really matters. So if sound doctrine leads to a healthy church, where does all this false doctrine lead? What is the outworking of conceited teaching? What does someone like that sound like? Well, verses 4 and 5 paint a, a pretty grim picture, I think we can agree. Controversies, quarrels, envy, strife, malicious talk, constant friction. In contrast to the healthy and sound teaching, the result is an unhealthy interest in controversies. Now, while there are interesting and stimulating debates to be had in church and in home group Bible studies, of course, about different points of view on certain passages of the Bible, one of the best maxims you can have in the Christian life is keeping the main things as the main things. I don't start to become divided over things that are not the central doctrines of Christianity. A church like that is likely to be a place where arguments scupper any chance of moving forward or consensus being reached. And it's not just church, of course, we've seen plenty of that behaviour in the Brexit debate, of course. Sorry to mention the B word again. I know it kind of drains the room whenever you hear it. Um, Actually, the best definition I heard of of that word was um, it's what a large man from Yorkshire does when he sits on a small chair. He breaks it. (laughs) Okay, if English is your second language, I apologise, that's not very inclusive. Um, Or if you're from Canada, sorry. Uh, See Bob or Indy for kind of an explanation afterwards. But in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, we saw the characteristics that good church leaders should display Um, temperate, self-controlled, hospitable, not quarrelsome, not lovers of money. That list of characteristics in chapter 6 is really just the opposite of that. A church where false doctrine is taught regularly will not be a place of unity. And we need united and decisive decision-making to keep us on the right path. Now, a few years ago, I had to to go down to Devon with work, and I was travelling on my own. (coughs) 
Um, I had to fly to Bristol Airport and then I had to get a hire car. Uh, and it was in pre-sat-nav on phones days, which is not actually as long ago as you think, about five or six years ago. Um, so I had a, a scrappy directions and a bit of paper sat in the driver's uh, passenger seat next to me. I thought that would be fine. It was summertime, so I knew I'd be driving in the daylight, so I'll find my way there, I'm sure. Anyway, the plane was leaving Newcastle rather late, and so by the time I got to um, driving into Devon, it was getting a bit dark. But I thought, no problem, just stick to the main roads, be fine. But then I started to realise that the main roads in Devon aren't really that main. And they were pretty dark, really. Um, and then I came across the road close sign, completely blocking the road. And there's some yellow diversion signs pointing the way, so that'll be fine. Um, and for some reason, a rather optimistic mood came over me. I don't know if this happens to you in that sort of situation. But things like this start popping into my head, like, oh, I'll just see where this road goes. This feels like the right way when you have very little to base those feelings on. But anyway, the optimistic guy was with me in the head, so that was fine. We just kept on following the yellow diversion signs. Not a care in the world. Eventually, I came to that junction where the yellow diversion signs have vanished. Uh, so I had to go with an optimistic hunch. Left or right, let's go right. And then the white lines disappeared from the road. And the optimistic voice in me said, they've probably just resurfaced the road recently. Not a problem, keep on going. But then there was that distinctly gritty, unmade road sound coming from the bottom of the car. And then the coup de grace, a large closed gate across the road. I had to face the fact I was now totally lost, well away from the main road and the direction that I was meant to be heading. So when I finally pulled into the B&B at one o'clock in the morning um, to be met by a slightly hostile B&B owner, it has to be said, um, I learned a really valuable lesson when you are going the wrong way, you will waste a lot of time if you don't turn round. And so it is in the Christian life. When we follow false directions from false teachers or get involved in quarrels and arguments, we'll find it all a big harmful waste of time. We need to change course and follow the right path of sound doctrine. So I suppose the challenge is this. Are you someone who finds themselves in arguments and quarrels a lot? How can we learn to use our time more profitably? Is there someone you meet at work or in your family that you're constantly at friction with? Ask God to help you deal differently with that person. Life really is too short to waste on controversies and quarrels. Now I know when we hear that kind of challenge, there's a tendency in some of us to feel a bit crushed. We focus on our past failures. Being challenged about our failings through Bible teaching is important. Of course it is. We need to have our own PR balloon punctured from time to time. But when we've <laughs> repeatedly failed in this area, it's easy to develop a sense of, well, where do I go now? Well, let the words from earlier in this letter of Timothy give you hope. Paul said, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because he acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Isn't it amazing that we have... A saviour who shows immense patience. How good is that? Let's pray to God to pour out his grace on us abundantly once more. 
Your Paul wasn't a super Christian. Let's get that straight. He was a sinner. The worst of all, according to his own words. And that same grace is available to each one of us each day. So Paul has urged Timothy to teach the church it's all about accuracy and not arguments. Holding on to sound doctrine will protect us from the dangers of false teachers and the quarrels that they breed. This next section is all about contentment, not cash. So Paul's basic point here is that godliness should lead to contentment, and that really is great gain. And when Paul uses the word godliness here, I don't know what it conjures in your mind, but it's conveying the idea of a personal attitude towards God that results in actions that are pleasing to him. A personal attitude towards God that results in actions that are pleasing to him. The idea of contentment is not some kind of easy life contentment. It's not a call to be content with injustice or content with a weak Christian faith, but to be content with the necessities of life. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that, says Paul. And Paul knew what he was talking about. He had been shipwrecked, beaten, locked up in prison, lived under house arrest. He knew what it was to have very, very little He knew what it was to lose wealth and status. But in complete contrast with the financial gain pursued by the false teachers, there is great gain, lasting gain in godliness with contentment. So this is not a message about being self-sufficient. It's about relying on God. Paul writes in another letter, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. This was not a call to look within and to stand strong. This was a call to look outside and to trust in God. Paul then develops his point by echoing the words of Job chapter 1. Naked I came from my mother's room, and naked I shall depart. When young George Abel Scantlebury uh, made his appearance the other week, um, he only arrived wearing his birthday suit and a fine head of hair. And right now, I guess if he is clothed and warm and fed, tempting fate here, uh, he's pretty content. That's a yes from the back there. And I guess that was the case with most of us as babies. For warm and content and fed, then life's good. So, if you don't mind me saying, where does it all go wrong? Why and when do we lose that simple contentment of children? A minister took the funeral of a very wealthy woman and was asked a rather cheeky question by one of the congregation as they were leaving. How much had she left? His reply hit the nail on the head. She left everything. Possessions are only the luggage of time. They are not the stuff of eternity. And Jesus warns us to travel light. Matthew chapter 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy. And where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also so where is the line between contentment having what we need end and the hoarding of unnecessary luxuries begin it's a tough one isn't it I came across this um, from the Lausanne Committee of World Evangelization in 1980 so 40 years ago and they came up with this statement at their conference it's titled the evangelical commitment to a simple lifestyle 
We resolve to renounce waste and oppose extravagance in personal living, clothing and housing, travel and church buildings. We also accept the distinction between necessities and luxuries, creative hobbies and empty status symbols, modesty and vanity, occasional celebrations and normal routine, and between the service of God and slavery to fashion. Where to draw the line requires conscientious thought and decision by us, together with members of our family. And that was written 40 years ago, but it pretty much covers a lot of the current uh, movements against fast fashion, unsustainable travel habits, single-use plastics, and flaunting of wealth. And Jesus sums it up even more succinctly, as he so often does. Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. I don't know if you've ever found yourself looking at other people with envy. I wish I could afford a holiday, or a more glamorous holiday, a newer car, a smarter smartphone. If we're having contentment issues, then I wonder if it's because we're having too much stuff issues. The American queen of chat shows, Oprah Winfrey, once said, Be thankful for what you have, you'll end up having more. If you concentrate on what you don't have, you will never, ever have enough. And I found Jesus' words there so interesting. Um, Perhaps like me, you might have thought that first century Israel was not a place where people were piling up things. There was no Amazon impulse, one-click shopping, no 24-hour shopping available then. But Jesus still warned the people about the danger of measuring their life by the abundance of their possessions. You see, the human heart hasn't changed throughout history. (coughs) Contentment isn't found in just getting more stuff. And even in death, people still want to hang on to their possessions. The pharaohs were buried with great wealth to help them in the next life, or so they thought. But yet it was nearly all plundered by thieves sometime soon after their funeral. Verse 7 shows the folly of all that. We brought nothing into the world and we will take nothing out. If we're to have great gain in life, then we need to seek contentment through godliness and be glad in the blessings of what we need, food and clothing. So it seems there's a a great irony at work here. The contentment humanity seeks is found in simplicity and godliness. And yet we live in a fallen world where from the moment Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden... They had to deal with the weeds. And since then, life has become more complex and ungodly, I would suggest. Okay, we've spent a lot of time identifying the problem. Do we need to refocus our lives today on walking with God? Are we seeking contentment in things that will leave us unfulfilled? Let's ask God to help us strive for a simpler life. Give us today our daily bread. So what happens then when we reject these words of wisdom and we seek a life of cash, not contentment? So let's read verses 9 and 10 again. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Hmm, doesn't sound so good. 
Let's deal with an obvious point. First of all, verse 10 is one of the most misquoted verses in the whole Bible, often repeated as money is the root of all evil. And Paul says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So money in itself is not the problem, rather the love of money. Paul is possibly referring here to a well-known Greek proverb or to Old Testament wisdom writings like Ecclesiastes where it says, whoever loves money never has money enough. But is this just Paul being the kind of Christian fun police again? What's so bad about a life that loves money and seeks to earn as much as possible? Is it not okay to be relaxed about people being filthy rich? Is this just Paul preaching an early form of Marxism, keeping the workers in their place, accepting the status quo? Is there no place for people striving to improve their lot, to earn wealth? So a clarification is needed. Paul is not advocating poverty, but a simplicity in lifestyle. Money used well can be a massive blessing. I don't know all the ins and outs of Bill Gates' enormous wealth, um, but last year he pledged a billion dollars to help try and eradicate malaria. So this is not anti-wealth teaching, but it's a warning against the self-destructive effects of greed, of loving money instead of God. Paul is not all for rags over riches, but he is all for contentment over greed. So why does Paul use such dramatic words in verse 9, like fall into a trap, or, or phrases like harmful desires and plunging us into ruin and destruction? Perhaps one of the keys to understanding the danger of the love of money is given by Tim Keller in his excellent book, Counterfeit Gods. He explains the dangers in this way. Now, Tim Keller, I've been a pastor for 30, 40 years. Over the years I've been a pastor, I've had people come to me and confess they struggle with every kind of sin apart from one, greed. I cannot recall anyone saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my soul, my family, and those around me. Jesus warns people far more about greed than about lust, yet almost no one thinks they're guilty of it. And I think Tim Kell is onto something here. Perhaps the hidden nature of greed, to ourselves at least, is, to make what, is, to make, is what makes the love of money so dangerous. German philosopher Nietzsche back in the 18th century, predicted that as the Western world became more secular, money would become its main god. He might have got a lot of other things wrong, but he was spot on about that. And Paul's warnings about the love of money, they are echoed throughout the Bible. Achan's sin in Genesis, Judas Iscariot betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Ananias and Sapphira in the early church when they didn't hand over the money they got for the field. And in all three cases, it led to their untimely deaths. At its most basic level, the love of money is a symbol of our reliance on things other than God. Our security should be in God, not in our wages or our pensions. Money, after all, is basically a symbol of trust. (coughs) I promise to pay the bearer on demand the sum of £10, it says, on our banknotes. Of course, money allows us to do both good things and bad things, to provide food for our family, to give to church or to charity, to help those in need. But the love of money seeks to replace love for God with a devotion to money itself. What did Jesus say on the subject? No one can serve two masters. 
Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And if you doubt that, then just make a quick list of things where the love of money is a major cause. Selfishness, cheating, fraud, robbery, envy, the drug industry, the porn industry, people trafficking, slavery, blackmail, exploitation of the poor, neglect of good causes. Those 39 poor people who died in that refrigerated lorry two weeks ago, that was because people traffickers loved money more than they loved those Vietnamese people. I'm sure you can think of other examples, but that's a pretty ungodly list. So that's why one of the outcomes we read about in verse 10 is some people have pierced themselves with many griefs. Billionaire Howard Hughes became paranoid about getting infections from other people, so he would book the entire floor of a hotel so he didn't have to meet anyone. He had so much money, but he was pierced with grief. And then there's the grief of remorse when you discover that materialism can never satisfy the human heart, that the love that you focused on serving money is a love that is never returned. The second effect is even more serious. It's that love of money causes people to wander from the faith. If we think back to the parable of the sower, um, some of the seed fell on good ground, some on stony ground, and some on ground that later became choked with the cares of life. The love of money has the power to lead us away from Christ, and that is surely the greatest potential grief of all. You cannot serve both God and money. You will love the one and hate the other. So Jesus said then, with good reason, watch out, be on your guard for all kinds of greed. Are you in danger of falling into temptation in this area? Are there traps of greed in our lives? Tim Keller talked about greed as something no one ever came to him to confess. It sneaks up on you, so be warned. Do you and I need to look again at our relationship with money? Back in in February, I spoke on the opening verses of Matthew 6, and we looked at our giving to God's work. And that is a good indicator of our love of money versus our love for God. Do we give enough money to God's work to really impact the lives that we lead? If you want to test your love of money, try giving away some more of it. Maybe, as I've been speaking this morning, that is an area the Holy Spirit is putting his finger on your life. And if you're a young person or a student this morning, giving really is a godly discipline to practice as soon as you have money to call your own. If you don't learn to give a small amount when you have only a little, I'm certain you'll find it much harder to give more when you have a job, hopefully. Of course, it's right and proper for us to earn money, to work hard and to use it wisely to bless others. We need to provide for ourselves and our families. The Bible is really clear on that. But let's not be eager for money. Let's be eager for God. Okay, let's recap our four points from this closing words of chapter 6. Accuracy. We need to be seeking the truth in God's word and avoiding false doctrine. Be careful what you listen to and read. Study the Bible to make sure what you're being taught is accurate. Is the fruit of that teaching love for God and other people? 
arguments by holding true to the main things it will keep you from pointless arguments and quarrels remember the grace that god has poured out on each one of us contentment if we are to understand what great gain is we need to seek contentment and godliness do we need to simplify our lives are we having too much stuff issues and then lastly cash seeking contentment in jesus will help us avoid the trap of loving money and the griefs that come when we serve money and not god but we need to watch out and be on our guards for all kinds of greed it's about accuracy not arguments and contentment not cash My guess is the things that we have spoken about this morning that Paul has brought to our attention are a challenge to everyone here. And it's easy to feel deflated that you've got so much wrong. I know that's a tendency for me. Why bother? But I want to encourage you that the love of money or that argumentative habit can be overcome when it's replaced by a greater love. That is the love of Jesus, who though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Who, when accused, didn't open his mouth. Who, at the cross, let ignorant men seem to triumph, so that he might win for us the ultimate victory, paying the debt of our sin and defeating death by rising from the dead. Back to the fell running book I mentioned at the start. Perhaps it sums up what we've been thinking about this morning. Success depends on what you have in your head and your heart. The less you have in your backpack, the better. Shall we stand together and sing?